Please open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This morning, God willing, we will complete our study of the 8th chapter of John. I'll remind you that chapter 7 and chapter 8 all revolve around one event, one week, where Jesus goes up to Jerusalem as per the law of Moses to keep the Feast of Booths. He stood up in the middle of the week-long festival, And then he stood up on the great and final day that began in chapter 7 and goes all the way through chapter 8. This morning, our passage will end with Jesus went out of the temple. And so, in this great and final day of the feast, our Lord speaks. He invites men and women to come, follow him, promises that to those who believe in him, rivers of living water will flow from their hearts He declares that he is the light of the world, and that those who follow will walk in light. And now, at the climax of this encounter, he will speak most plainly and most clearly about his identity. It is often common when you hear skeptics and unbelievers, they will insist that Jesus never called himself God. Part of the reason for that is Jesus' ethic, as seen in the Sermon on the Mount and other places, is so self-evidently good and beautiful It's hard to condemn him wholesale. And so the problem then becomes when someone who has such a good ethic insists that they're God, if you're an unbeliever, that's problematic. So they want to to argue that Jesus didn't say he was God. The the early church did. And Jesus was just a humble preacher with a good ethic, teaching to turn the other cheek and love your neighbor. John's gospel, among numerous other passages, destroys such a view. No place clearer than our passage this morning. Jesus has been hinting at who he is. He has been speaking in such a way that those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see will understand. But now when he's pressed, he will speak plainly. And the response from the Jews will be just as plain. They want to kill him. So this is a climactic passage. Let's read John 8. We'll read from 48 to 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am so they picked up stones to throw at him but jesus hid himself and went out of the temple let's pray lord god 
What a majestic passage. Um, I pray that you would give us the faith to receive your son as he truly is. Um, That he would be to us the great I am. That we would not respond like these Jews, but would respond with faith. So help us to see and to hear and to receive him as he is. In Jesus' name, amen. Now this final section of the discussion takes place over four exchanges. You can see it in the text. Verse 48, the Jews answered him. Verse 49, Jesus answered. Then 52, the Jews said to him. Then 54, Jesus answered. Then 57, so the Jews said to him. 58, Jesus said to them. There's four exchanges. That's the nature of this last section. And these four exchanges cover three topics. So as we try to look at and see Jesus speak more and more plainly about who he is, I'm going to suggest we can look at this in three points. Jesus declares his true identity. Now, in one sense, he has been declaring this throughout the whole gospel. But this is the most clear he has been, particularly for those who do not believe. So Jesus declares his true identity, and the first thing we'll see is that Jesus is not demon-possessed. Jesus is not demon-possessed. That's the charge the Jews make in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying, You are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, if you track back the pronouns, this is the same group in verse 30 of chapter 8. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, It's the same group. We begin to see why Jesus did not just welcomed them, and he knew there was something deficient in their faith. What he said to them was actually, if you continue in my word, the faith I'm looking for abides in my word, continues in my word, remains in my word. If that's who you are, then you're truly my disciple. The truth will set you free. They don't like the implications that they're enslaved to anyone, and Jesus makes it clear. I'm talking about freedom from slavery to sin. They definitely don't like that. They insist, we're, we're, that doesn't define us. We're children of Abraham. He says, no, you're not. They say, yes, we are. We're children of Abraham. He said, no, you're not. They said, well, then we're, we're children of God. He said, no, you're sons of the devil. Which I think is part of the reason they bring this charge against him. He has told them, you're not sons and daughters of Abraham. And God is not your father. The devil is your father. Well, they, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. They say it back. It's, it's sort of sophomore. It's sort of childish. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. That's their response. That's their charge at him. This is now the second time in this, in this passage that Jesus has been accused of having a demon. If you look back in chapter 7 to verse 20, this is during the um, Feast of Booths. 7 verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So, so already this notion that Jesus is demon-possessed is somewhere in the crowd. What's notable now is that the Jews who had believed in him accuse him of this. Okay. Um, it's the word of God, so it's hard to interrupt. But, um, but anyway, um, so this, this accusation that Jesus has had a demon, and we know from the other Gospels this was common enough, and I think the logic in part is Jesus did undeniable miracles, undeniable miracles. 
Notice that his, his, no one tried to claim that he didn't do miracles. And when someone does miracles on such a scale and with such repetition as Jesus, you're really left with two options. Either this is someone working miracles in the power of God. That's what Nicodemus said. No one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Or you've got to claim his power for miracles comes from a different source. I argued last week that when he said, which of you convicts me of sin, that's the line of his argument. Yes, I'm making grand claims. Yes, I'm saying remarkable things. But am I not also working the works that validate and prove it? I'm not a sinner. Point point out my sin. You've got to account for what I'm saying and the miracles I do to confirm what I'm saying. Which of you convicts me of sin? They can't. So they take the other route. Okay, then you're demon-possessed. So he's said that the devil is their father. They accuse him of having a demon. He said Abraham's not their father. They're saying, well, neither is he your father. You're a Samaritan. And we know the Jews despised the Samaritans. So whether it's an ad hominem purely, or whether they're also sort of trying to take the same accusations Jesus made against them and push them back, and they push it back at him. Think of the high-handedness of this. This is God in the flesh. These are sons of Satan, and they have the audacity to say, are we not right in saying, you are a Samaritan and have a demon? To which Jesus responds, I do not have a demon. First, we'll look at his defense. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So let's consider Jesus' defense. He doesn't have a demon, but he honors his father. Now, I think there's an implied argument. The Jews are taking offense at Jesus making claims that would make him to be someone of importance, someone great, someone grand. And the implication is you're speaking about yourself. Jesus has already acknowledged if he testifies about himself, his testimony is not true. So he's responding to the claim that the implied charge, something like you're, you're promoting yourself, you're self-aggrandizing, you're an egomaniac, something like that. And he insists, no, no, I'm honoring my father. That's what I'm doing. I'm honoring my father. That's part of the reason why Jesus doesn't speak always and everywhere about how great he is. The people that want to say, well, if Jesus is God, why doesn't he just open every conversation like that? I am Jesus and I'm God. Well, for a couple reasons, not the least of which is that would be fine if he was on a mission seeking his own glory, but he's not. The other reason why I don't think he opened every conversation like that is because when you're presented with these claims, it forces the issue of will you bow the knee, will you worship, or will you pick up stones to throw at him? That's what happens here. It galvanizes these Jews who had believed in him. And as Jesus needs to make it through three years of ministry, he needs to be crucified at the right time in the right place, he speaks with less clarity for the crowds to hear precisely to control the tempo at which he's being driven to the cross. Now we're six months out from the cross. He's speaking more plainly. But the first answer we get here is that his mission is not one of self-glorification, but rather to honor his father. So that's his, his first line of defense. I don't have a demon, but I do honor my father. You need to understand that even Jesus' claims of greatness are done as a way of honoring his father. I think that will become clearer as we move forward. In contrast to that, you dishonor me. The Jews dishonor Jesus. So Jesus is not honoring himself. He's honoring the Father. But what they're doing is they're dishonoring him. That's plain to see. They've just accused him of being a Samaritan with a demon. There's going to be some other implications coming up, so hold on to that. They're dishonoring him. They're dishonoring him. There's one, I do not seek my own glory, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is judge. 
So he is seeking to honor his father, and he's not seeking his own glory. Jesus has already spoken about this in John chapter 5. In John 5, he says um, in verse 44, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? And in John 5, 41, I do not receive glory from people. There is a sense, we'll see, in which Jesus is seeking glory. It is high priestly prayer. Jesus is glorifying the Father, and he knows that in glorifying the Father, he will also in turn be glorified. There is one sense in which Jesus is precisely for the glory, for the joy set before him, enduring the shame of the cross. What he's not doing is looking for glory from these people. He's not trying to short-circuit the glory. He is on a mission to glorify his Father, and in glorifying his Father, he will be glorified. And the way he will be glorified is by being crucified. That's how the Father has determined that all will honor the Son. What he's not doing is looking for the praise and the applause of these people. He says, I do not seek my own glory. But then he counters with, there is, however, one. There is one who seeks it, and he is judge. His Father is seeking it and is judge. The father is seeking the glory of his son. In many respects, you could view the mission of Jesus as a proud father sending his son to be glorified. And what's amazing is in the wisdom of the Godhead, the father is determined that the son will be glorified precisely by being shamed and lifted up on a cross. So Jesus is not seeking his glory. He's not defending his glory. And just pause and consider how indicting that is for us. Every time you or I get angry, every time you and I get irritated and and want to push back when we feel that we've been dishonored, that someone's been rude to us. We are seeking our glory. You will not treat me this way. I'll give you a piece of my mind. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was seeking the glory of his Father. And yet every time we get angry, in one sense, we are seeking our own glory. King Jeremy is going to let you know what King Jeremy thinks about that. And King Jeremy's not happy. Jesus doesn't seek his own glory. He instead trusts it to God to seek his glory. In fact, turn, turn to 1 Peter. This is such an encouraging and convicting passage and way to understand what Jesus is doing because Jesus is making huge claims throughout this chapter. And he's not doing it for self-aggrandizement, for self-glorification. We'll understand why he's doing it in just a moment. But 1 Peter 2, let's look at it in verse 21. Let's, Let's go back to verse 20. What credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Most people I know, even when they do wrong, grumble and whinge and complain when there's consequences. Peter's assuming that's the floor That's not even worthy of commendation. Of course, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. What of it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It is a gracious thing in God's sight when his children do good, are mistreated for it, and then endure. For to this you've been called. What's this? Being mistreated for doing good. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So this, in this angle, precisely, we're told to imitate Jesus. And then he goes on to spell it out. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What Peter is doing is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If this principle holds true with the most righteous one, if the one who had the greatest right to cry foul and say, how dare you, it'd be Jesus, right? In one sense, when you and I are mistreated, we deserve it. We deserve hell. As Charles Spurgeon once said, don't get upset when someone speaks ill of you. They don't know the half of it. So in one sense, even when they're wrong, they're right. Jesus, on the other hand, is, is the Son of God who's sinless. So the, the arguments from the greater to the lesser, if, if this principle holds true in the most extreme instance, how much more so in less extreme instances? So you feel, you feel that you've been righteous. You feel you've been wrongly treated. Join the club, Jesus more so. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled... He didn't give him a piece of his mind. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Jesus did, and that's what we're seeing here. Jesus is saying, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm confident my father is, and he is judging, and he's completely confident and comfortable to leave it in his father's hands. My father will vindicate me in his time. His father is judging. It's not that Jesus says, I deserve it, or it doesn't matter, or it's no big thing. Dishonoring Jesus, saying that he's possessed by a demon, I think that's a pretty big thing. And his father will deal with it in his time. So just, just marvel at the humility and the obedience of our Savior. If anyone had the right to fight back, if anyone had the right to just lay into his people dishonoring him, be our Lord. And he doesn't seek his glory. He seeks to honor his father, even while recognizing they dishonor him. And he's confident his father will judge. His father will vindicate. And the Psalms, that's the way the Psalms go. You remember in Psalm 119, how many times? Vindicate me. I'm innocent. Vindicate me, O Lord. So so marvel at the humility and obedience of Christ and, and imitate it. He left you this example. His father is seeking it and is judge. That then really condemns them from point one. His father, there is one, and it's clearly his father. There is one who is seeking Jesus' glory. Jesus is not seeking his own glory, but there is one who is, and these people are dishonoring him. What do you think then that that does in their relationship with God? If you would dishonor the one whom God would honor, and this goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, whoever honors you, I will honor you. Whoever dishonors you, I will curse The father is intent on his son being glorified. These people are intent on dishonoring and treating shamefully his son. By implication, they're at odds with God. This gets back to God is not your father because you're contrary to his purposes. His purpose is to glorify his son, and these Jews are intent on shaming him. The father is seeking it, and the father is judge. Then we get to his invitation. And it might seem strange that in a defense that he's not demon-possessed, he makes this statement, if anyone, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And I think this helps explain why Jesus is, in fact, making the statements about himself that he makes. Jesus is on ultimately a mission of proclaiming the gospel, the good news of salvation. And we've seen that these people are deluded, 
They're self-righteous. They're self-confident. They think God is their father. They think Abraham is their father. They think they're good. They think they're not slaves to sin. And Jesus is warning them. Jesus is inviting them. We've seen it already when he talked about rivers of living water, about being the light of the world. And Jesus claims his promises of salvation hinge upon his authority to make them. So Jesus has to establish his authority so that his message has authority. We, we see this with Paul. If you read through 2 Corinthians, and Paul says things like, I speak like a madman. The last thing Paul wants to do is promote himself, is tell you how much authority he has. And precisely because Paul's gospel is coming under attack and being eclipsed, he has to. He does the same thing in Galatians. Let me, let me tell you, I, I received my gospel not from men, Paul says, but from a personal revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, I went up to Jerusalem, and I met with the bigwigs. I met with Peter and James and John, and they gave me the right hand of fellowship. We're in agreement. And Paul's not boasting. Paul is recognizing that it is critically important for his readers to receive his message as pure and authoritative. I believe the primary reason Jesus is speaking about his authority here is the same reason. He has to establish his credentials as the prophet like Moses. He has to establish his authority to speak as God so that the message that must be received and believed will have credence. It's the foundation of his invitation. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now, the Jews in a moment will understand that is a far greater claim than anything the prophets or Abraham ever made. That, that's precisely what they're going to throw in his face. Who do you think you are? Abraham never said, if you keep my word, you'll never taste death. The prophets never said, if you keep my word, you'll never taste death. Who do you think you are? So precisely because this message is a radical message, he needs radical authority. So we see his invitation. This is one of two times he says, truly, truly. The second will be the instance where they try to stone him. And we get a condition and a consequence. If, then. Condition, consequence. What's the condition? If anyone keeps my word. Oh, look, we're back on the focus of Jesus' word. All the way back in 31, that's what he put out to them, right? If anyone, if you are truly my disciples, if you abide in my word. John introduces Jesus with the unique title as the Word of God, and the Word of God comes with a word from God. Jesus and the revelation that he gives are indistinguishable. He is the Word. His words are the Word. And what John is doing again is showing us what's tied up in saving faith, receiving Jesus for who he is. In one sense, these Jews, back in verse 30, back in 31, they were willing to believe in Jesus as somebody from God, maybe even a prophet, maybe even the prophet. But as Jesus clearly and more clearly and more clearly yet reveals who he is, they hate it. But believing Jesus isn't a magic formula. I've I've said this before when people say, I believe in Jesus. Well, who do you think he is? Who he is and what he has done, it means everything. Islam, in some sense, recognizes Jesus as a prophet. So Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, and and again, the issue is Jesus as the one who speaks for God, Jesus as the prophet like Moses, Jesus as the word of God, Jesus, as we'll see in this passage, as the one who is God. And we know what you believe about Jesus by what you do with his word. 
That, that's the insistence. And this has been going through the entire gospel. Back in chapter 6, the insistence. Turn, turn back to chapter 6 in John. And in John chapter 6, the emphasis, now remember they, in verse 14, identify him as the prophet like Moses. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And in Deuteronomy 18, there's a little review test, what's your one obligation to the prophet like Moses? When God does send the prophet like Moses, what are you to do? You're to listen to him, right? And Jesus begins teaching, and they love the bread, and they love the free food. And as Jesus begins to speak with more and more clarity, they begin to get offended. And in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So Jesus says in verse 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Those who turn away, it's a hard word, can't listen to it. Jesus insists, my words are spirit and life. And the remnant that remains, what defines them? What confession, what confidence do they have? Jesus turns to Simon Peter in the 12 and says, do you want to go away as well in verse 67? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It, it, the, the, the proof test of what you make of Jesus, because these crowds recognize he's a miracle worker. They, they recognize something. They're, they're, they come out and they find him and they spend the night there. I mean, there's some level of commitment. What do you do with his words? What do you do with his words? Will you receive his words? Will you hear his words? No, this is a hard word. Who can bear it? They go home. And the 12 and a small remnant are convinced you have the words of life. Jesus stands up and some people believe in him. And Jesus insists again back in chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here he says to them, if anyone keeps my word. I'm just trying to highlight the unity of theme. What you do with Jesus' word is the same as what you do with him. In other words, there is no room for I love and accept Jesus, but I don't like his teaching. Then, then you don't think he's the prophet like Moses. Or to put it as simply as I can, if you think Jesus' teachings are optional and negotiable, you don't think he's God. I put it as simply as that. If you think Jesus' teachings are optional, negotiable, you don't think he's God. And that's the type of logic Jesus is making. The word for keep here, to guard, it doesn't mean perfect obedience. Of course, we'll never perfectly obey. But tereo can be used to guard of a, of a castle or a keep. I like to picture, uh, I'll use a sports metaphor. I know I'm in dangerous territory. But I like to picture the, 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 the football player, with the arm, they put the arm under his ball, right? the, arm, the ball under his arm, running downfield. He is guarding. He's trying to keep that ball. He may get knocked down, but there's no doubt that he's endeavoring to hold on to, to keep possession of the ball. Jesus is saying, if we endeavor to keep, to guard, to hold on to his word, we will never see death. That's the mark of true faith and true discipleship, that we are those who endeavor to hold on to, to keep, to do his word. And again, this doesn't stop even here. Turn to John 14. This, this is straight through John. This insistence that what you do with Jesus in his teaching is what you do with Jesus. And the other t insistence that what you do with Jesus is what you do with God the Father. Th those come together. John fourteen fifteen. 
If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So is there any loving of Jesus that doesn't keep his commandments? No, there is not. doesn't matter how many tears you shed during worship, how many warm fuzzies you have when you pray. If you're not endeavoring to keep Jesus' words, you don't love him. Period. Full stop. You can take it on Jesus' authority. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then look at 1421. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So straight through John's gospel is that Jesus is the new lawgiver, the new Moses, and what you do with his teaching, what you do with his word is a pretty clear indication of what you do with him. And Jesus, now for the second or third time, is showing people who have some level of allegiance to him, some level of commitment to him, have some faith in him, but it's divorced from, separated from any sense of submitting to his teaching, holding fast to his teaching, and he reveals to them, you actually push, come to shove, you hate me. As he speaks more and more plainly about who he is, they're going to pick up stones, these Jews who had believed in him. So he is loving them, even as he says some hard words. So the condition, and it's an open invitation to anyone, if anyone keeps my word, if anyone will hold fast to my word, if anyone will receive my word, obey the command from Deuteronomy, hear him, listen to him, what's the consequence? He will never see death. Eternal life. You, you can never see death. You can have eternal life now. And Jesus has been promising this throughout the gospel as well. John 3.16, For God's love the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Again, it's all tied up. There's a sense in which you're, you're believing God sent Jesus that Jesus is who he is and you're believing his word and Jesus insists it's a package deal. There is no honoring of the Father without honoring the Son. There is no honoring the Son without keeping his word. If you keep his word, you love him and the Father will love you. I mean, this, there's a triumvirate here at work. And here, the one who keeps his word will never see death. John six forty. this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. John six sixty three, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In Peter's confession, you have the words of eternal life. So that's the first exchange. Let's pick up the second point. The Jews are offended by what he has said. They're going to continue to get more offended. And so now we move from, does Jesus have a demon or not, to Jesus is, in fact, greater than Abraham. Jesus is greater than Abraham. The Jews think they've got him now. Now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. So, what's their argument? Their argument is this. Abraham, to whom the promises came, the prophets who spoke to God for God, those who wrote the Old Testament, 
They kept God's word. We know that Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. They died. They, they tasted death. They, they know where some of their tombs are. And moreover, none of them made such grandiose promises. Abraham never promised anybody, if you'll just keep my word, you'll never taste death. They recognize in Jesus a claim that surpasses any claim made in the Old Testament. And in a sense, they're absolutely right. Uh, there's an irony here. We, the reader, know from the beginning of John's gospel, yes, he's greater than Abraham. You remember the Samaritan woman at the well? What did she say to him? She said to him in John 4, Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Yes, he is. Is he greater than Moses? Yes, he is. Is he greater than Abraham? Yes, he is. The Jews ask him that. So the blank here, Abraham and the prophets kept God's word and died. So then they ask him plainly, who do you make yourself out to be? Now, clearly, they don't believe it, but they're really getting the, the magnitude of his claims. So just tell us plainly, who do you think you are? They say to him. So Jesus responds. And he'll eventually answer their question, but he's, he's got to clarify some things. And another reason I think Jesus doesn't always and everywhere speak plainly and openly about his deity is because you need to qualify it. The first time he clearly speaks about it in, in John 5, you get a, almost an entire chapter of him explaining what he means and doesn't mean by it. I'm not in competition with the Father. I only do what I see my Father doing. The Father shows him all that he, he himself is doing. I've, in other words, what we would call Trinitarian theology, Jesus needs to qualify lest you think Jesus is teaching polytheism, or that he is God the Father. And so here, he's going to qualify, and then he'll answer. Jesus replied, um, I If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So he begins with point one, vindication. Vindication. Jesus is not glorifying himself. So this is tough because they say, who are you? And it's not fundamentally his job to glorify himself. If he does glorify himself, his glory is nothing. The Bible is clear on this. People who insist on their power and their right and their glory rather than letting another do it are false. Jesus has said this already. If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Here, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. He's not on a mission to glory. But there is a sense in which glory is being pointed at him. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Now here, you're blank after vindication. It's my Father who glorifies me. We get to a point of irony. And this is the first sort of clear connecting of the dots. Jesus has spoken about there is a one, or my Father. Here's the first time it becomes plain and clear. When Jesus says my Father, he means the one they call their God. So that that's has just become clear. As he's talking about his father or the one who sent him, it, there may be some ambiguity. Here, for the first time, it becomes entirely clear. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. All this time I've been talking about my father, I'm talking about the one you call God. That, that's who I'm talking about. <laughs> so that, that's, that becomes clear. And there's an irony 
of course, which is they insist God's our father, God's our father, God's our father, and yet they are intent on the exact opposite purpose of God. God is seeking Jesus' glory. God is glorifying his son. The works the Father's given him to form, they validate. God speaks from heaven on a couple of occasions, testifying to his son in whom he is well pleased at his baptism on the mountain. The Father is in the act of glorifying his son. His spirit whom he sent is glorifying the son. That's the mission that the Father is on, is to glorify his son, and these people do not glorify him. And yet they insist God is their father. That's the great proof that God is not their father. They're at cross purposes with God. The vindication is my father who glorifies me. Irony, the Jews insist he's their God. Well, this is the proof he's not. They don't love what God loves. Rather, their desires are to do what their father's desires are. And then, this slap in the face, their ignorance, their ignorance. I, you have not known him, he says, verse 55. I know him. If I were to say I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. They lie when they say they know God. And pause, let that sink in. We want to believe that all religions have truth to them, and we're all worshiping the same God. Jesus says to Jews, reading their Old Testament, in the temple on Mount Sinai, you don't know God. Why? Because you hate the one he sent who images him. If you don't love Jesus, you don't love God. If you don't love Jesus, you don't know God. Jesus is the one who plainly taught this. And these are people who are dealing with truth. Their holy book is true. How much more off are those who have false books? They're part of the true religion and the true temple on earth at this time with true scriptures. Yet because they hate and reject the Son of God, Jesus can say plainly, they don't know God. In contrast, that he does. And again, he's not boasting. The, the importance is the connection with the authority of his message. I'm from God. I'm commissioned by him. This wasn't my idea. I know him. He gave me these words to speak. And on that basis, receive them. Believe them. It's essential. It's critical that you believe my words. It's essential that you keep my word and you'll never taste death. So Jesus has to insist, I know him. And not only does he know him, Jesus keeps his father's words. He's, he's not calling on us to do anything he's not teaching us to do. Jesus himself is a keeper of God's word. The one who perfectly kept God's word is turning to us and saying, now you keep my word. You keep my word. We see Jesus' dedication. I know him and I keep his word. Earlier in this chapter, verse 29, Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus knows the Father, and he keeps his word. And now, finally, he'll come around to answering their question. Are you greater than Abraham? Now that he's made that qualification, that he does know God, he's not seeking his own glory. Then he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's a big claim. And before we look at their response to it, what is Jesus claiming? In what way did Jesus rejoice that he would see Jesus' day? And in what sense did he see it and was glad? It's possible 
Jesus is speaking about Abraham viewing what's going on from heaven. Possible. I, I, I doesn't seem, um, I don't think that's what John is getting at. I'm not sure what elements of the events on earth those in, in glory get to see. The book of Revelation makes it clear they're aware of some of the things going on, but I don't know. I think rather this is tied up in the promises to Abraham, which are tied up in a seed, right? Turn, turn back, in fact, one passage that I think brings this together, Genesis 22. Turn back to Genesis 22. The promise to Abraham was a land and a blessing and a seed. And that promise of a seed, what you see sometimes descendants, initially is fulfilled in Isaac. But even after Isaac is born, God's talking about a coming seed. And in in the in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord tests Abram and tells him to offer up Isaac, his only son. Abraham expresses his confidence in chapter 22, verse 7. Isaac said to him, Father Abraham, to his father Abraham, sorry, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, of course, we know John the Baptist was linking off that when he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the Lord stops him, sends an angel. Now pick it up in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of the place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. By the way, where did Jesus get crucified? Where it was on the mount of the Lord. The angel of the Lord called from heaven a second time and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your ESV offspring, seed. As the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, your seed shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring, your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham is looking for a coming seed beyond Isaac. Isaac's here, Isaac's born, and the promise is still, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. Abraham's looking for the coming seed who will bless the world connected with the Lord providing a sacrifice as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it should be provided I think that's what Abraham's looking towards to and rejoicing in the promises to Abraham what Abraham had his hope so here's what Jesus is saying Abraham's great hope was that he would see my day and to the degree that he saw it first in the provision of the ram on Mount Moriah and then the promise of a coming seed he rejoiced or to put it as simply as I can, I am Abraham's great hope and joy. They get it. They they are staggered by this claim. Quickly, point three. Jesus is the Lord God. Jesus is the Lord God. Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now, they're not fully tracking with him. They understand that he's just said Abraham has seen him. I don't think they understand what he means. And so there's, as a surface level, this is ridiculous. Abraham lived over a thousand years ago. You're, you're not even 50 years old. And how has Abraham seen you? 
And now Jesus removes all ambiguity and makes his most plain and clear statement of deity. The, the short version is, Abraham saw my day because I am the eternal God. That, that's how Abraham saw my day, and that's how I saw Abraham. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, there are many places, I think, where Jesus claims to be God. This has got to be the plainest. Remember, in Exodus 3, Moses is in Midian, tending her herd. He sees a bush that is burning and not consumed, and he approaches it. He's told to take off his shoes, for the ground is holy. And as the Lord commissions him, Moses said to God in Exodus 3.13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say? Now here's the question. So in Hebrew, we've got a couple of terms that will show up in your Old Testament. Elohim means God, but it's a generic term. You'll see, you'll see references in the Psalms to the gods of the peoples. The peoples have gods. Elohim is a term that can be affixed to the Lord, but it, it's, it's generic. So if I'm coming to you, Moses says, saying the God of our fathers has sent me, well, what's your name? How are you identified apart from Molech, Dagon, or the other Tammuz, the other gods? How, how, how are you identified? What's, what's your name? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So in your Old Testament, where you've got Lord in all caps, that is the translator's way of translating the divine name. The, the Hebrew, the three letters, um, which is sort of an impossible conjugation of the verb to be, sometimes referred to as Yahweh. That's, that's a pretty good guess because we've got to fill the vowels in. Um, sometimes referred to as the name, if you talk to Orthodox Jews, or the Tetragrammaton. That's what Jesus is claiming. He's not claiming generic godhood. He's claiming to, I am the God who revealed himself at the burning bush to Moses. That's who I am. I'm not just God in the generic sense. I am Yahweh. Because the defining characteristic of God is self-existence. This is what sets God apart from all the creation. If you read through Isaiah, he's not like the created order. Why? The created order comes to be. There was a time when you and I were not. We, at some point, came into being. Everything around you, everything in this room is contingent. Everything in this room has come into being at some point. Not so God. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. John's gospel opens, in the beginning, and I think I remember when I taught this, the verb, in the beginning, the word was being. As far back as you go, Jesus isn't starting to be, he's in the process of being, he continues, he is. I had a professor who said, Jesus is. It's trying to get the grammatical concept across. He is being. However far back you go, Jesus is in the process, he continues to be. Because he is Yahweh, the one who is self-existent. He is God. Now, they, they get this. The, the, the proof that I'm reading this rightly is they get this. Because when they hear him say this, they don't talk anymore. 
There's no more debate anymore. There's just kill him because he's committed blasphemy. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. See, John's point is to show us, I think, why it is his own people rejected him. Remember, John's gospel begins, he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. The reader wondering how, with all the signs and all the miracles that he did, and all the teaching, and all the love, and all the reception, and all the meekness, and all the gentleness, how did his people reject him? They rejected him because he claimed to be God. It was his claim to deity and his treatment of their sin that they hated. They loved Jesus, the miracle caterer. They loved Jesus, the healer. They did not like Jesus, the son of God. And so we see in one chapter how a group of Jews who made some amount of faith and profession towards Jesus can go from verse 31, 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, how you go from there to they picked up stones to kill him. He spoke clearly about their sin and he spoke clearly about his deity. And they hated it. They hated it. Now John doesn't tell us how he escaped. He he hid himself, whether this is supernatural hiding or whether it's just natural ability, I do not know. All John cares about is he was able to avoid them. And he went out of the temple. What we're left with is these two clear responses to Jesus. You can receive him as Lord God, who he is. You can bow the knee to him. You can honor him. You can confess him. You can worship him. Or you will ultimately hate him. The only reason some people can say they like Jesus, he's a good teacher, is because the claims aren't pressed and put in their face. These people, earlier, big fans of his, as long as his claims were foggy and unclear. But as he clarified what he meant, what he was requiring, and what he thought of them, as he spoke with greater clarity about their sin and his identity, their hostility grew. And so it is to this day. If you're here this morning as as a believer the Son of God, part of what you're believing is that He is God. I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to sing our closing song. There's no way we could end this service without ourselves confessing His deity, His greatness. Join with me in singing of the greatness and the glory of the Son of God.